Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be having the second part of our study of Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. headed towards the end of Romans chapter 8, we find ourselves on verse 29 this morning. So turn there in your Bibles. Let's look at Romans chapter 8 verses 29 and 30 today. This is actually the second part of a study of those verses. Last week we talked about more general themes brought up by these verses. Today we'll look at the text of the verses in detail. As we have discussed over the last few studies, starting with verse 29, Paul looks at things from God's point of view. Whereas in the chapters preceding Romans 8.28, Paul spoke about justification and sanctification from a human point of view. From a human point of view, we make choices which, are, uh, which affect our ultimate destiny. We choose to place our faith in Christ, which leads to our justification. We choose, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to be servants of God rather than slaves to sin, which helps us along in the process of sanctification. Now, let's see what all of this looks like from God's point of view. Let me read verses 29 and 30, and then we'll dig into them. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, quote, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified." These are amazing and extremely significant verses. They teach us, first and foremost, that God is intimately involved in his creation in general and in the lives of his people specifically. God is not a God, as many believe, who just wound things up and let her rip. No, God is, as I said, intimately involved in all aspects of his creation and specifically at work in the lives of his people. And the amazing thing is that God's interaction with us really began before we even existed. That's what's implied in verse 29. For those God foreknew, it says. God knew us before we existed, and then, based on that foreknowledge, predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. In fact, this link between God's foreknowledge and who he chooses to be as people, which is also known as God's election of his people, is also spoken of by Peter in his first epistle. Here's what Peter said in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter. Quote, to God's elects, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who had been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Christ and sprinkled with his blood." Unquote. So, both Peter and Paul point out a link between the foreknowledge of God and those who are elected or who are predestined to be adopted as children of God. Regardless of its link to foreknowledge, the predestination of those who become Christians, which is asserted here, is quite remarkable. It's a remarkable statement for Paul to make. One thing that it does is to point out the awesome power and knowledge of God. 
And also, as I said before, it teaches us that God is intimately involved in what goes on here on earth. The doctrine that God predestines or or chooses those who will become Christians through an act of their own faith, this is most commonly called the doctrine of election. And as is the case of of all the major doctrines in the Bible. It's stated in multiple places in the Bible. Romans 8 is not the only place where the doctrine of election is presented. Let's look at a few. We previously looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, where we saw that Peter agreed with Paul in tying God's foreknowledge as being a factor in the choice of whom God elects to salvation. In a beautiful passage in the book of Ephesians, Paul speaks again of God's choosing us for salvation. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Quote, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves." Unquote. The doctrine of election is implied also in a passage in Acts. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were preaching to Jews in a synagogue in a town in Turkey. Uh, Pisidian Antioch was the town. And then they left the synagogue and People wanted them to speak more, and so they did, and ended up speaking to many non-Jews as well. Here's what Luke records in Acts chapter 13, verses, uh, verse 48, quote, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of God, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed, unquote. So here we have the act of faith shown by some of those who heard the preaching. We have that act of faith tied to God's appointment of them to eternal life. So you have here Paul preaching, many heard, not all responded by faith, but the ones who did respond by faith were the same ones whom God appointed long ago to eternal life. Now, as we discussed in the last study, these are difficult concepts for our small heads to wrap themselves around. It's difficult for us to reconcile God's election of individual believers to salvation, something that he did as it's testified to in scripture long ago. It's tough for us to reconcile that with the fact that we are told to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. We view as humans the choice to believe in Christ as an act of free will, an act that we as humans choose to do. And as we discussed last week, Though through the lens of our finite and very limited human intellects, these concepts may seem to be contradictory, the Bible affirms in many places, as we have seen, that they are not contradictory. And so we have to take that on faith. And as I said last week, the best way that I have come up with to, shall we say, deal with these doctrines in our day-to-day lives is to let God be God and let humans be human. Because we are humans, and our experience as humans is that we make choices in our day-to-day lives, we need to continue to strive to make the correct choices as we live. If God, in his sovereignty, has somehow arranged things to make it easier for us to make the correct choices, such that that choice is somehow predestined, well, well, that's his business. As a human, I still need to make the correct choice. So the bottom line is, let God be God, and let humans be human. As a person, I will live as if I have the free will and duty to make the correct choices. 
As a believing Christian who believes that the Bible is the Word of God, I have faith that, even though I'm living my life as if I have a free will to make the choices that I make, yet I believe that God is sovereign over everything and that He works things according to His purposes. That's how I reconcile these two seemingly irreconcilable concepts. What you don't want to do is to go overboard in one direction or the other. When hearing about God's sovereignty and election, there are some who say, well, if God is sovereign and he has predestined who will become Christians or not, well, then that means I should just sit here and not do anything because God will force the matter anyway. By living by that philosophy, you're overweighting the teaching about election and ignoring the myriad of places in the Bible where it is taught that we, as humans, do need to make choices in our lives and that we do have the free will to make these choices. We're told in Acts 16 that if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. In Romans chapter 10, we're told that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. In John 3, we're told that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That faith, that act of believing, is a choice that we make as humans whether it was predestined or not. It's still a choice as a human being, living in this place in time and space. It's a choice I must make. Peter reconciles these concepts beautifully and tells us how to live our lives in light of the doctrine of election. Here's what he says in 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Quote, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble." As I said, this is a beautiful reconciliation of these concepts. Paul affirms the doctrine of election, and yet, personally, he tells us to live our lives such that we, quote, make that election sure, unquote. Prove it. Prove it in our lives by the choices that we make, that indeed we are the called of God. Let God be God and let humans be humans. Acknowledge that God is sovereign, but also acknowledge that I need to make the right choices in life. And our goal in living our lives is sanctification, or as Paul puts it back here in Romans, back in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, unquote. That's the overriding purpose of our election. We, we tend to see the purpose our, of our election as the salvation of our souls. Our salvation so that we don't have to endure the punishment that we all deserve for our sins. But God, it seems from here in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, God sees our election being made with the purpose of, quote, conforming us to the image of his Son, unquote. So then, this underscores the importance of sanctification for the Christian. We are absolutely not to pray the sinner's prayer and then go off and live our lives as, as if nothing had happened. We are to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we are to live our lives as if Jesus really is our Lord. That's kind of the essence of what Peter said in in telling us to, quote, make our calling and election sure. We make it sure by living lives worthy of that calling, by striving with the help of the Holy Spirit to be more Christ-like, or as Paul says, to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's the overriding purpose, as we're told in Romans 8.29, of God predestining us, of God electing us. 
to be conformed to the image of his Son, such that Christ is, as Paul says next, quote, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, unquote. This is a beautiful image. God is gathering a people for himself. Christ is the firstborn and head of many brothers and sisters. This is the church. Through sanctification, we're conformed to the image of his son in order that we may be part of this group of people called the church of whom Christ is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, as I said. Paul continues in verse 30 by giving us an outline from God's point of view of the whole process that we go through as Christians. Let's read Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Quote, And those God predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Unquote. In verses 29 and 30, we have five verbs, which are five stages that outline, from God's point of view, the sequence of events for all Christians. We're foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Some scholars call these the five golden links, because they are links in a strong chain which can't be broken. James Stifler Uh, an American theologian from the late 19th century, described them beautifully as, quote, five golden links connecting God's gracious purpose in the eternity past with its consummation in the eternity to come, unquote. God's purpose for us began long, long ago with God's foreknowing of us. God will, and it will ultimately lead in the future to our glorification by God. Many see here in these verses a proof text that the salvation of Christians is assured. And that appears to be one of Paul's main points here. We have an assured salvation. Paul leaves no room for any exceptions. He says, those whom God predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. No one has dropped off along the way. Those who are predestined end up being glorified. We already talked a bit about the foreknowing and the predestining. Let's talk about the calling. The calling referred to here is what is known as an effectual calling, meaning a calling which had the desired effect of having the person respond to the calling by putting their faith in Christ. Otherwise, they could never make it to the justifying step. We find the word called used at times in the Bible for callings which may or may not be effectual callings, callings which may or may not be responded to. Most of us are familiar with the verse in which Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. You find that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Clearly from the context, Jesus there is not speaking of an effectual call, but more of an invitation, which may or may not be responded to. Many are called, but few are chosen. And besides, actually in the Greek, the word that Jesus used for called uh, there in Matthew 22, 14, is actually a different Greek word than the one that Paul used back in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 30. The, one, the word that Jesus used is really better translated invited, which means called in the sense of being invited. And in fact, the NIV translates it correctly as such. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Back in Romans, the word that Paul is using is very close to our English word to call out. 
call in the sense of, hey, you, yo, calling out to someone in that way. And as I said, Paul is speaking only of an effectual call because in context, uh, Paul says that those who are called are also justified. Paul is speaking of those who respond to the calling. And this makes sense because Paul is talking about things from God's point of view. When you receive the call directly from God, it will be effectual. If I was walking in the parking lot and, and say, my local pastor called out to me, hey, hey, Scott, I may or may not choose to ignore or pretend that I didn't hear you know, his call. But if God calls out to me in the parking lot with, with his power, with the power of his glory, well, I'm going to listen. Paul says next in verse 30, those God called, he also justified. Justification, as we have often spoken of, is a judicial act of God's will where he declares us to be righteous. God chooses by his grace to view us just as if we had never sinned. It's an amazing act of God's grace, which we can only obtain, as Paul has pointed out, through faith in Christ. Paul taught us this in the great passage at the end of Romans chapter 3, which lays out the gospel message. Here's what he wrote in Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Quote, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Unquote. We gain the righteousness which comes from justification, quote, through faith in Jesus Christ, unquote. So it's interesting here in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, as I said, Paul is looking at things from God's point of view and listing the actions of God. He's leaving out the actions that we take. We see that God foreknew us and then predestined and called us, but then we need to respond to the calling by having faith in Christ. And then this brings about God's act of justification. So then, we have the actions of God in verse 29 and 30. First, God foreknew us, and then God predestined us. We aren't really involved in the matter yet, for, you know, for we don't even exist yet. And then we have the key step of God calling us. This is the first step in which we are directly involved. We receive the call of God and we respond to it because it's not just your pastor who's calling you, it's God who's calling you by the power of the Spirit. We respond to the call with faith. That's our response to that call. Here in Romans 8, Paul doesn't list faith as a part of the five golden links because as I said, he's listing the actions from the point of view of God. In Romans 8. But we know from other places in Romans and, and throughout the New Testament, as a matter of fact, that our act of faith in Christ precedes God's act of justification. So faith in Christ is our response to God's call. This results in God's act of justifying us. And then after justification, there's another thing that we need to work on before we are glorified, and that's sanctification. Again, Paul doesn't mention that here in the list in Romans 8 verses 29 and 30. It's not one of the five so-called golden links because it's something that we need to work on, we humans, though we do have the help of the Holy Spirit in this. After we're justified, we as Christians go through the sanctification process, the process where day by day we work to become more Christ-like. 
And though Paul doesn't mention sanctification as one of the five golden links, Paul actually does refer to the process of sanctification in verse 29, where he says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined, and here's where sanctification comes in, to be conformed to the image of his Son. A large part of being conformed to the image of Christ is the process of sanctification. That's our work here on earth after we are justified, striving to be conformed to the image of his Son, striving to be more Christ-like as we live here on earth. And all this will lead to the last link in the chain when we are glorified by God. Those he justified, it says, he also glorified. Paul also speaks of this in the book of Philippians. And it turns out that our glorification is also a part of being conformed to the image of Christ. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, where Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So that's the ultimate fulfillment of being conformed to the image of Christ. When at our resurrection, our bodies will be transformed so that they are like Christ's glorious body. And we don't uh, know exactly what that means or exactly how our bodies will be changed, but we'll all find that out later. By the way, Paul doesn't change the verb tense for the last act of glorification. Notice that Paul says, that we are justified, and then he says we're glorified, speaking as if the glorification had already occurred. And, and that is to say that as far as God is concerned, it already has occurred, even though we ourselves haven't experienced it yet. God has already seen it, though it hasn't happened for us yet. We are glorified, and that is part of the assurance that we have of our salvation. So, those are the five golden links. God foreknew us, and those he foreknew, he predestined, and then he called, and then justified, and then glorified. How can one not, after hearing this, just say, praise the Lord? What a blessing. And that's the effect that this passage should have on us. It it is so great that God himself has already laid all of this out for us. It's an incredible blessing that we can forever rest in. We don't have to look over our shoulders and wonder, uh, am I still a child of God? Am I under his protection? Am I still on my way to glory? It's already been determined. The primary reason that Paul is teaching us all this stuff about God's foreknowledge and predetermination of these things was not to confuse us or or to tie our minds up in knots. Uh, That wasn't the purpose of this teaching, though it does have that effect on, on many people. No, the primary purpose of this teaching is to give us comfort, to give us an assurance that our salvation will occur. It's already been predetermined. And for that, we should praise the Lord. And moreover, we should live our lives in great confidence of these things. And that's how Paul ends the chapter. He ends with this great passage on the confidence that we should have moving forward as we live our lives as Christians. Let's read that great passage to end things today. And we'll look at this passage in detail in our next study. Let's read Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39, quote, What then shall we say in response to all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord." Wow, what can you say after that? That's a great passage. And again, we'll immerse ourselves in it in our next study. And, and let it wash over us completely then. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond 5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.